Open up to the book of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. We're journeying through the letter uh, of 1 Corinthians. Paul writes this letter to a church that he has planted. And one of the things that we have discovered, uh, hopefully if you've been paying any sort of attention at all, is this church has major problems. Uh, And this church has problems because it's filled with people. And people usually bring their problems with them. And so we get a little bit of an insight into how Paul was dealing with all the problems that were plaguing this church. And what Paul is doing throughout the entire letter is he has this overarching like thrust and theme what he's trying to get at and his overall theme that he's trying to get at with the Corinthians is that all of life's most complex issues in fact all of life can and should be seen through the lens of the gospel and the gospel should actually change how we live and we see him uh, touching down in different areas like unity in the church like marriage divorce a sexual ethic like how we worship together community Union, the resurrection, every one of life's most complex issues can and should be seen through the lens of the gospel. And last week, we were in 1 Corinthians 5, and we saw that Paul calls Christians to judge each other. Do you guys take that away from last week? Is that kind of a weird thing to even process? Maybe if you weren't with us last week, you can skim and just look ahead in the paragraph right before. What Paul is doing is he says, don't be concerned with judging people outside the church. Don't be looking at the the unrighteous, those outside the family and judging them. You guys need to be taking sin seriously inside the body. And so Paul's been talking about how to deal with this unrepentant sin that is inside the body. He talks about how it infects every part of the church, right? It's a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. It's like a little bit of cancer infects the entire body. Or like a grenade that goes off in the room and everyone has shrapnel pieces in them. Like this, this idea that unrepentant sin affects you and you only and it doesn't somehow affect the community is foreign to Paul. Is when we bring our baggage and we're actually not dealing with our own sinfulness, it not only affects you, but affects everybody else in the church. All right, so particularly last week, he was dealing with a man that was sleeping with his father's wife, uh, which is really crazy. Uh, next week, we'll be teaching uh, uh, around sexual immorality. Uh, we'll be teaching about marriage, divorce, singleness in the next coming weeks. And so it's going to be a pretty wild next few weeks here. But today, what we're talking about is, is 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is a little bit of a, a continuing thread from what Paul has been doing in 1 Corinthians 5. Because today, Paul is talking about how we deal with conflict in the church, and even what happens when we don't deal with conflict inside the church. And so go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, start over in verse 1. And Paul says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, Are you incompetent to try any trivial case? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this is to your shame. Can it be there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Paul 
is addressing the reality that we, much like the Corinthian church, do not know how to deal with conflict. We don't. When hard stuff bubbles up, we are ill-equipped to deal with it. We don't know what to do with it. We have unique problems and how we cope and process through those problems. And we see the Corinthian church had their problems as well. They were taking all their dirty laundry inside the church and getting other people to deal with those matters rather than dealing with it themselves. Paul had just talked about in 1 Corinthians 5 how to deal with sin in the body. And he did it for a few reasons that we looked at last week. And the first was the sinner's own redemption and reconciliation and healing. Absolutely. And also for the protection of the church, right? So sin doesn't kill a church. And now we see another reason. There's another reason here that we need to deal with sin and conflict inside the body. Not only for the person who is doing wrong, their reconciliation, redemption, their healing, and not only for the protection of the church, but also Paul's other reason is people were going outside the church to deal with matters that should be dealt with inside the church. And it is harming the testimony of Jesus to unbelievers. That's the other reason. When we don't deal with sin and conflict properly inside the church and we take it outside the church, it harms the testimony of Jesus to an unbelieving world. Now, a bit of background on, on this and why uh, lawyers and courtrooms and, and judges and the law was such a big deal for Paul here. And so uh, two helpful things to, to have in mind as we talk about this first is that just like today, lawyers back then were really expensive. And so to take matters to court skewed in favor of those who were well off, right? And so it already created this disparagement of people with different socioeconomic backgrounds. And so if you had the means and the ability to go to court, you already had the upper hand in this scenario. And the second thing is if you were really, really well off, you could afford a really, really good lawyer. Now that may be really obvious to you and I, but the thing about a really good lawyer in first century Corinth is they were also like sophists. Right? Remember these guys who would come and travel to town? They would kind of amass their own following and kind of spew their own truth and wisdom. And it was all this fancy, eloquent speech, and people would applaud them and say, how amazing. And it was this form of public entertainment. So if you were really, really well off, you would hire a really, really good lawyer who would function like a sophist. And so people would pack the courtrooms just to come watch this one lawyer argue their case. And so it's getting at, for Paul, another version of entertainment. If we're connecting these dots here, Paul says not only are you dealing with issues outside the church that should be dealt with inside, not only are you bringing in people that have no standing in the church, but you're doing it in a way that is a public spectacle to Jesus. You're doing this in a way that is entertaining for those in the city, watching Christians go at each other. It's entertainment. And once again, the Corinthians were buying in to the worldview and value systems of the city they lived in, not the kingdom of God or the way of Jesus. So head back up to verse 1. I want to pick this apart just a little bit with you guys. Verse 1, when one has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? He's going to ask a whole bunch of questions in this, a bunch of rhetorical questions. This is the problem. This is what was happening. It was Steve and I had a beef, and instead of dealing with it here, we went to the courtroom and put it on public display. 
And this word here, grievance, when one of you has a grievance against one another, it's actually a very specific word. Paul is not talking about crimes. So he's not like, Steve murdered my wife, and, you know, I have to deal with it inside the church and not go to court for that. That's not what he's talking about here. He's a grievance, right? And this particular word was a matter, a question, an affair. It had particular relevance to property and money, okay? So this is like a property dispute. Right? This is like me and my neighbor arguing about where my backyard starts and his ends. That's what's going on here. So that's the grievance that's coming up. So a few things right off the bat. What Paul is not saying is if a crime is committed, don't worry about it. Just brush it off. It's not what he's talking about. Right? He's talking specifically about this idea of a grievance. And he's also not saying that you can never take a believer to court. Right? It may be possible or even necessary, especially if we're dealing with criminal matters, but that's not what he's getting at here. If we look at the, whole, the paragraph as a whole, the issue is Steve and I taking really small dis- disagreements or matters or disputes and putting them on display in this really public forum in a way that is providing entertainment for those and ruining the, the witness of Jesus to the unbelieving world. Right, the person who is wronged is going outside the church for something that can and should be handled inside the church. They're going to the unrighteous rather than the saints. And essentially, he's continuing like talking about church discipline. This is a church discipline passage, just like last week's was as well. Like you as a church need to deal with sin inside the body for the sinner's protection and redemption, for the church's protection, but also for the sake of a witness of Jesus to an unbelieving world. He ties this present problem that's going on right now to a future reality in verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? There's a lot to unpack here and another rhetorical question that Paul is getting at. But basically, the short version is Paul says, you and I, Christians, have some sort of role in helping Jesus judge the world when he returns, when he comes back, right? Not at the first time as a poor itinerant Jewish rabbi, but in victory, riding on a white horse, when he is coming to make all creation and humanity right and redeem all of creation, that there is some sort of role for Christians in that process. And what Paul is doing is not only he assumes they would know this, that he assumes they have this theological background that, oh yeah, of course, when Jesus returns, we're all going to be fellow judges, right? He makes that assumption, but he also throws this back at them as illogical, Like if we Christians have some responsibility in judging all humanity and creation with Jesus someday in the future, why can't we handle a simple property dispute? Why can't you handle such trivial matters right now? For Paul, this wasn't just bad ethics or morality. This was bad theology. They were forgetting who they were and where they are headed And it's causing them to live differently here and now. Because crucial to Paul's line of thought is that the church is an eschatological community, a forward-thinking, futuristic community. Some community that doesn't only exist here and now, but exists in the future as well. You, look around the room for a minute, are going to be with these people forever. Forever you're going to be with these people Paul says, live in light of that reality. Live in light of eternity. 
Live and act now like you will have to sit next to Vanessa in eternity. If you can't handle a small dispute now, why do you think you're going to handle it later? This life is preparation for the life to come. God is helping you live now like you will live there forever. And Paul says you've forgotten who you are. You're living according to different values. You're living counter to your identity, counter to your status. You've forgotten who you are and where you're headed. We're going to be with each other forever. It continues on in verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Of course, obviously, we do that. How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Right? When you have a dispute among yourselves, why do you give jurisdiction to those who have no jurisdiction? Right? Why are you taking your issues to people who have no standing in the church? It's not only none of their business, they have no authority to decide this stuff. People who live by a different worldview, different value system, maybe even a different faith. Why would you take your issues to that person? I say this is to your shame. Do you guys remember just a few chapters before, Paul has gone out of his way not to shame the Corinthians. Right? He says, I, I don't say this for your shame, but I say this you would, to warn you, to admonish you, so you'd be built up and matured. He goes out of his way over and over again to not shame them, to not guilt them, and to remind them who they are, and instead point them towards a better future. It seems to have taken a left turn here. He says, I say this is to your shame on you if you are not dealing with things inside the church that should be dealt with inside the church, and instead are taking it outside and making a public spectacle of the church and of Jesus. Shame on you. Shame on you, people who blog publicly at each other, dissecting one another, taking each other down for the entertainment of a few. Shame on you who get on weird cable news channels and fight about things that should be dealt with inside the church. Shame on you. Can it be there is no one among you who's wise enough to settle dispute between brothers? This is another rhetorical question from Paul, right? The Corinthians prided themselves on being intellectually elite, prided themselves on on their wisdom and being smarter than everybody else and more well-read than anybody else. He says there's not even anyone wise enough to handle such a small thing. And Paul's asking for all this supposed wisdom that is supposed to be here and a people who are so well-read and so intellectually elite, and so evolved, so culturally adept, so there's no one in here who can settle this trivial matter. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. You're airing out this dirty laundry. You're airing out complaints in the center of town. And instead of pulling people towards the church, you're repelling them away by how you're acting. Instead of, people, instead of pulling people towards Jesus, you're turning them off to the whole idea altogether because of how you interact. Why would I follow Jesus if he can't even help you settle small disputes? You're living just like everybody else. Why does following Jesus change everything if you're going to live like everybody else? 
What does it say to the world if we are unable to handle our own disagreements? What does that say about the power of the cross and the power of the gospel? What does it say that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, but I'm harboring bitterness against Jeff for that one thing he said three months ago? What does that say? How can we faithfully take a transformative gospel message to the world if I still have beef with Jeff? My brother. Jesus, or Paul says, you are living counter to how Jesus said people will know you are my disciples. In John 13, Jesus said, people will know you by how you love each other. People will know me by how you love each other. Paul says that you're taking these disagreements before the world instead of dealing with it. And he says, because you're doing that, it's already a loss. Whether you win or lose, you've already lost. Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Have you guys ever watched, um, like, Judge Judy, People's Court? Like any, have you ever, like, seen those kind of shows? Have you ever just thought, like, how many things have had to go wrong in your life to land in that room? I don't care if you're the plaintiff or the defendant. Like, something has gone wrong in your life so substantially where you are on TV fighting over a $500 water bill. Like, this is crazy. Just, you're, you've already lost if you're there. Paul is saying the same thing. If you're dragging another Christian before an outside court to handle this trivial case, you've already lost. You have already lost. The gospel's already tarnished in that moment. The witness is gone. The church is disunified. And it doesn't matter if you win or lose, you've already lost. Part of life in the kingdom of God is learning to lay down your rights for the purpose of unity and preserving the testimony of Jesus. He continues in verse 7, Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Why not suffer wrong? Why not? Every one of us will be wronged by someone probably in this room sometime soon. If it hasn't happened already, it'll happen soon. Don't worry. It'll happen. And most of the time it'll be small and just needs a small conversation and the extension of forgiveness. But sometimes it'll be bigger stuff that's got to be dealt with. We'll hurt each other and let each other down. I will hurt you and let you down. I make that promise to you every single week. If I have not already hurt you, it's coming. Don't worry. I will disappoint you in some way or some fashion. Why not rather suffer wrong? Sometimes, because you follow Jesus, you're going to need to lay down your rights, your entitlements, what is rightfully yours, and allow yourself to be wronged for the sake of unity and the testimony of Jesus. Which, by the way, is a sign of maturity, laying down your rights, considering others better than yourself. It's a sign of maturity that we're growing into the likeness of Christ who suffered unjustly and laid down his own rights. Before you meet Jesus, or maybe even after, that might sound like a crazy thing. And we can probably think of a thousand reasons like why we shouldn't lay down our rights, and they all start with, yeah, but, right? Yeah, but you don't really understand what he did to me. Yeah, but you don't really understand what she said when I wasn't there. But you don't really understand how big of a deal that was or whatever. Part of following Jesus 
is going to be laying down your rights, something you're actually maybe entitled to in 2019 in the state of California. You, you might be entitled to a bunch of stuff. And part of following Jesus is going to be laying down those rights. Not that you can just say, poor me, and sit in the corner and feel sad for yourself, but to preserve unity and to preserve the testimony of Jesus. So how do we respond if, we're, if we've been wronged? We're trying to seek out that reconciliation. How do we actually walk this out? How do we walk out finding resolution, especially maybe when the other person isn't responding? Right? So how does Jeff handle it if I just won't hear it? I'm, talk to the hand. I don't want to deal with this right now. How does Jeff walk this out? I love what Paul says to the Romans, by the way. You don't have to flip there if you don't want it. We'll throw it up on the screen. But Romans 12, 18, he says this. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He's talking to Christians and how they interact with all sorts of people. But I love a couple assumptions that Paul makes. The first assumption is that will not always be possible. Like in, in your total, in your sphere, like what you have to bring to the table, it may not always be possible. But that doesn't mean you just throw your hands up and don't even try. Because he says, so far as it depends on you, you have a role to play. Even if it's not possible, even if they're being obstinate and stubborn and unrepentant, you still have a role to play in this. Flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2, if you have a Bible. Because Peter unpacks this same idea in light of the gospel. And Peter is talking about how we interact with all sorts of people and deal with injustice from all sorts of people, but it helps uh, adjust our lens as we think back to dealing with conflict in the church. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, Peter says, For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and you are beaten for it, you endure? Basically, what, what's the point is if you get what you have coming to you? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Peter's going to get really practical here. But first, he wants us to understand it is a gracious thing when we suffer unjustly. Why? Why would it be a gracious thing? What does that do to us? How does that cause us to live differently? And there's three things. Actually, three do's and three don'ts that kind of come out of this. And the first, Peter tells us, is to follow the example of Jesus. Right? Jesus gave us an example. Follow the example of Jesus. How did Jesus respond when he was suffering unjustly? How did he respond? How did he respond? Prayed for them. them. What was that? Calmly. Calmly. What else? Yeah, with love. He forgave them. Remember Jesus hanging on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The biggest suffering, the most unjust suffering, and he's forgiving them. So follow Jesus' example, forgive others. 
One of the things about forgiveness, forgiveness really has nothing to do with the other person. I did a whole teaching on this back in Matthew, if you guys remember. Forgiveness has basically nothing to do with the other person. If Jeff wrongs me and I forgive him, that doesn't do anything really different to Jeff. Maybe if he's like sorrowful and repentant and it might fuse us back in a relationship, that's awesome. But forgiveness is for you. It sets you free from being bound by your right to hold on to that grudge. Forgiveness doesn't have anything to do with the other person. Follow Jesus' example, who is selfless and sacrificed for others. Forgive others. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Okay, so we have two do's, follow Jesus' example, forgive others, and a couple of don'ts. When, not if, but when you suffer unjustly, don't sin and don't slander. Right? Be careful that you don't sin and you don't slander when you're treated unjustly. Not if you're treated, but when you're treated unjustly. Prepare now, well. Don't sin, don't slander. Don't think of retaliation. Don't think of how you can get that person back. Don't find some like passive-aggressive way to like trip them up somehow because they've messed you up. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Talking of Jesus. Don't retaliate. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye. But I tell you, don't retaliate. Don't sin, don't slander, don't retaliate. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The third do, entrust yourself to God. So follow Jesus' example, forgive others, entrust yourself to God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That this would actually change how we live. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus is our shepherd. He loves you more than you could know. So when we entrust ourself to him in the midst of suffering unjustly it is not in vain we entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly part of life in the kingdom of god is learning to lay down your rights for the purpose of unity and preserving the testimony of jesus we can do that knowing that jesus is our shepherd and he cares for us that he hears the cries of the oppressed, that he has not forgotten or abandoned you. He's not so far off or so aloof, but he is near and close, so much so that his spirit dwells in you. We can entrust ourselves to him and not worry about getting justice here and now, not worrying about defending ourselves here and now, because we can entrust ourselves to God, who knows what we're going through and is our faithful shepherd and overseer of our souls. So I don't know how many of you guys are involved with the lawsuit with someone else in the room, but probably not many, if any. So how do we walk away from this? What Paul's really doing here, just like he was doing with the guy who's sleeping with his dad's wife, he expands this and talks about broader living, right? He talks about sexual morality and dealing with sin in a broader way. And he takes this example of lawsuits that people are going before the world and airing their dirty laundry to teach us something about how to deal with sin and conflict in the body. And it's going to happen, and so how we respond matters. 
right? We need to let Jesus rule our lives and influence our response to these kinds of disagreements. So there are a few gospel realities that leak out of this text, three in particular that we're going to look at today. And the first is that as Jesus followers, we are called to live differently, As Jesus' followers, we are called to live differently. Paul says to the Ephesians that at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Right? You once had this identity, you now have that identity, now walk in that identity. And later he says to the Corinthians, when he writes back to them another time, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. You are a new, different kind of person than someone who does not follow Jesus. If you do not follow Jesus and you are here in the room, first of all, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. I hope you see that those who follow Jesus in the room look, act, and talk differently than anyone else you've ever met because Jesus has so changed them. They respond differently. They speak differently. They act differently because we are a new kind of person with a new identity, a new creation. We once belonged in a different kingdom. We now belong in God's kingdom. Based on that identity, how you respond to all sorts of situations are different. If you think back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is defining kingdom life, what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The prevailing wisdom and moral ethic of the day, Jesus says, I'm going to take this a whole lot further. If anyone slaps you on one cheek, turn around, let him have the other. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Paul was writing after Jesus, but he must have heard the Sermon on the Mount. He must have heard about it from the other disciples. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Not only that, but you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Once again, the prevailing wisdom and moral ethic of the day. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? How easy is it to like someone who likes you? It's pretty easy, right? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. When we are wronged by someone, we typically, if you're paying attention, want justice for them. But when we're the ones who are doing the wrong, do we want justice? No, no, we want mercy, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. They cut me off when I was getting off California. They didn't know the right lane because that intersection is confusing as I'll get out. And they cut me off. 
you do it again the next day, and you're like, oh, sorry, I hope there's not a cop around. Yeah, I, like, I, when I'm driving up and down, like, Santa Clara, I just, like, hope and pray there is a cop sitting there and getting all the people who, like, jump out of one of those parking lots and cut you off or whatever. I'm just like, where is there a cop when you need one, ready to pull someone over? One of my buddies is at CHP, and I, like, I'm tempted. I don't do this. I don't do this. But I'm tempted as I'm driving just to have him, like, call, call in the forces, like, call in the backup. I caught this guy speeding. Like, there have been, not with Sherry and my kids in the car, but there have been times I have followed people on the highway and actually, like, called in license plate numbers and... Yeah, you guys are getting to know me real well. <laughs> you guys have driven the car with me. Do I speed? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, those Priuses are faster than you think. Especially downhill, yeah. But do I, do I, do I have Greg on speed dial when I'm, like, speeding my, call myself in? Greg, I just had to confess to you, I was doing 83 and a 55. Take me away. Take me away. No, I, I want mercy for myself. So I want to get off. But we want justice for somebody else. You will be wronged by someone, and you will want justice for them. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Because if you get your justice, what does that communicate to the world? What does living differently look like for you? What does living like Jesus when we suffer unjustly look like for you? And actually, take a moment and think about that. Like, don't let it be a rhetorical question we move past, but actually take a beat. What does looking differently look like for you as you head into your job tomorrow or class, as you parent your kids, as you're hanging out with friends? What is actually living like Jesus when you suffer unjustly look like for you? To follow Jesus means it will probably cost you at some point. Cost you money, cost you time, Costs you convenience? Are you ready for that? Some of you have been following Jesus so long you've never even thought about that question, that it might cost you something. That it might cost you something when you are wrongly suffering because of somebody else. Somebody that owes you money and you can't just like let it go. When someone said that thing that was really hurtful, and you just carried it with you all week. It might cost you something. When someone blows you off five minutes before you're supposed to meet up. I was, uh, our van sliding door is like broken. It doesn't fully shut. All, it shuts enough so the kids are safe. I feel like I'm going to get a really weird reputation around here. It's just enough, but it doesn't like fully shut. Like, so it kind of makes this weird creaky noise and, and it, the, like the door open thing indicator is, is always on. We can't like set the alarm on our car. It's annoying. And I've been putting off actually like taking it in and taking, taking a look at it. So I call 
make an appointment. I do the thing. I make an appointment online. I'm a rule follower, so I make the appointment. And I go in, uh, and I describe in, in very exhaustive detail what is going on for how long and, and what some proposed fixes might be. Um, and I go in, and, and I drive up, and, and I wait in line for someone. And I said, hey, you know, my name is Bert. I have an appointment at 2 p.m. I made the appointment online. I have an appointment at 2 p.m. And I, I said all this verbatim, and I described what was going on. And uh, the guy looks at me straight in the face. He's like, uh, we can't help you today. Angry Bert came out in that moment. I have to confess to you because I made the appointment. I described what was going on. I've been living with the unjust suffering of a sliding door that will not close. And I finally get there and, and talk to him. And I like, I had this moment. Guys, I don't know if you know this, but when I come up here to teach something, I usually have to live it out in the week and usually not by my choosing. It's usually like God shoves something in front of my face to actually deal with it. And I halfway. I was almost there, guys. I almost responded really well. And then I started to say things that were mean and really harsh and in a voice that makes my wife, like, grab my wrist, you know, when she's with me and, and say, calm down. And I had to catch myself and apologize to that guy. He, I did nothing wrong, folks. I made the appointment just like you're supposed to make. I went in detail, and that they didn't have someone available to look at my car was not my problem. I had to, in that moment, apologize for what he did wrong and suffer wrong. Guys, this is a trite example, but do you get the picture that it's going to cost you? Do, you? do you get the picture that you may not always get the justice you want if you follow Jesus? Because Jesus did not get the justice he deserved. As followers of Jesus, you live differently. Second, is having hard conversations and dealing with conflicts properly demonstrates a counter-narrative to this world. It demonstrates something different to the world around us. When things get hard, particularly relationally when things get hard, how do we normally respond? Right? Maybe one is just disappearing, ghosting someone, just like not responding to calls, text messages, avoiding them. We see this in, in church all the time. People just leave. Right? People just leave. I say something that's like unkind or offensive. Luke says something unkind. We didn't, like, notice their new haircut or something like, I don't know what it is. All sorts of reasons. People just disappear. Disappear. Guys, Ventura is not a big city. I see these people. If you guys have been walking, we're a new church. We're about three and a half years old. If you've been walking this for any length of time, you've seen people come and go. Disappear. I see them all around the city. It does not get any less awkward when I see them at Prospect. I'm like, oh, I haven't seen you in a year. Can I, did I do something wrong? <laughs> Can I apologize? People just leave. That's how we as a culture deal with it. We also hold a grudge, uh, harbor resentment, right? Harbor like an anger towards someone else. Just bottle it up inside. I'm a bottler. I like my inner rage just increases every single day. I bottle down my emotions and then one day I'll die. That's how I handle stress in life. Just bottle everything up. Or we just hold it, hold the grudge. And so every time I look at you, I see the ways you've let me down and disappointed me. I see the, the things you've said that have hurt me or have hurt my family. And it just changes how I see you. Or third, we talk about it to somebody else, right? Maybe we actually get the courage to talk about it, and we talk about it to everybody else except the person who actually wronged you. Now, how should we go about it? If you remember Matthew 18, if we remember 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the key principle is to actually talk to the person that has wronged you, right? Don't 
text them something passive-aggressive. Don't email them an article about ways they should change. And, like, actually talk to them in person, one-on-one, and say, this is how you've hurt me, or this is how I think I've hurt you. Actually talk to them. Actually talk to a human being. Right? And if necessary, bring in a few other people after that. If necessary, bring in the church or the leadership after that. But talk to the person. Don't ghost them. Right? Don't hold the grudge and harbor resentment and despair and anger. And don't talk about it to other people. Burns unity. Burns the witness of Jesus. Having hard conversations is one of the best ways to show Jesus to this world. Right? Having hard conversations is one of the best evangelism tools that we have in our toolbox. Right? Not being able to have hard conversations and being just like the rest of the world is the best anti-evangelism for Jesus. Right? To say that we don't live any differently, what kind of compelling message is that? To that we have to struggle through relational strife and not know what that other person's thinking or feeling or whatever, never actually having the courage to deal with it. How does, how does Jesus change anything if he's not changing that? A lot of us don't want to do it because we're really bad at it, right? We're bad at having really hard conversations. I'm one of those people, I have, I have lots of really hard conversations all the time, all the time with you people, all the time with people who aren't in this room. I can't get away from it. I can tell you from experience, the only way you get good at hard conversations is to actually have them. It's like practice. Practice makes perfect. Just get those reps in. Kevin Bailey, a lot of you guys know Kevin. He leads our church in Anthem Camarillo. I don't know if I was so bold to do this, but he said he was going to challenge everyone in his church to get in a fight this week and to actually deal, deal with it the right way. But maybe that might be best for some of us who are like so used to like holding on to face and not wanting to offend others or just like would rather like harbor stuff in but actually have the hard conversation. Maybe with your spouse, get in a fight this week. It probably won't take much, right? Get in a fight. And learn how to fight well. Practice, practice, practice. Practice with someone you know who's not going to bail on you. Right? Close friends, someone in your community group. Show up to community group, just unload on people and get ready for the fight. I don't know if that's good pastoral advice or not, but we got to learn how to deal with hard conversations, and you're not going to learn to get good at them until you actually have them. Uh, Yeah, and when you have those fights, don't respond like you normally do. Respond in light of the gospel, yes. Okay, third thing, third thing. So second, if, if you follow Jesus, you will live differently. Second, having these hard conversations, dealing with conflict is actually a witness to the world. Third, when you are wronged and you deal with it properly, you enter into the real meaning of the cross. You will see the cross at work in your life as you die to yourself and not think what I want, what makes me happy what is going to make me feel justified so I'm defended, so my reputation is preserved. But when we actually say, not my will, but yours, be done. I don't need to fight for my own defense and justice because Jesus did not fight for his own defense and his own justice. He suffered unjustly. And when we respond properly, when we are wronged unjustly, not only will you be like Jesus and will grow into his likeness, but here in this space, you get to know him at a deeper way. 
I'm fully convinced Christians around the world who, who are suffering, who are in persecution right now, where it is illegal to do what we are doing here on a Sunday and they still push forward and meet and read and worship. And I'm convinced they know Jesus a little bit differently than you and I do in Southern California with our relatively comparably soft and cushy lives. We're like the biggest pushback we may get is like just someone at our work thinking we're kind of weird because we're actually one of those Christians. Like when we suffer unjustly and we enter into that, deal with it properly, let the gospel transform us and how we live, we get to know Jesus a little bit differently. We can identify with him a little bit more. Where do we grow the most in life, in easy times or hard times? Like we wish it were in easy times, right? Because then life would be all rainbows and unicorns and we just, sweet, I'm growing and nothing's ever going wrong. But chances are we grow the most when life is the hardest. When that like autoimmune disease just doesn't go away and no cure fixes it. When just like there's always this, this, this struggle you have with that one kid that you parent, it's like nothing you do breaks through. When you just feel like you push through job after job and just can't find like, your sweet spot in the career, you can't figure out what you were made to do. Those are the times you grow the most because in those times, we do one of two things. We either run towards God and let him shape us and change us and transform us and mold us into his image or we run away from God. And when we choose to run towards God, when we suffer unjustly, we are saying yes to being changed. We are saying yes to being transformed from the inside out to be more like Jesus. The power of the cross is all over this chapter. Only through the power of the cross can we surrender our rights, lay them down. We can suffer wrong. We can forgive those who harm us. The way of this world is retaliation, eye for eye, tooth for a tooth, justice for the other, and punishment. The way of Jesus is self-sacrificing love so that we are unified and the testimony of Jesus is on display. Paul has been really concerned about our unity for the first five, six chapters he seems to think it's a really big deal in how we grow and how we transform, but also in what the world sees about Jesus. Jesus also thought it was a pretty big deal. And one of his most profound prayers that we have recorded in, in the Bible, in John 17, is this moment where Jesus asks for those who would follow him to be unified so that the world would believe Jesus says, as he's praying to the Father, I do not ask for these only, the people who are right in this immediate context, for those, also those who will believe in me through their word, meaning you and I later on, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. We lay down our rights because we know there's more to life than this. And we know there are people in this city who need to know there's more to life than this. So why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? 
let the testimony of Jesus ring through this city.